Section 19 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 10, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mary the Second, Chapter 2, Part 1. The royal yacht that had attended the Princess of Orange and her husband to Holland returned to England, December 1st, bringing the intelligence of their safe landing. Two days afterward, the Lady Anne went forth of her chamber. Her servants all rejoicing to see her so perfectly recovered, she directly went to see her stepmother, the Duchess of York, who was not recovered from her confinement. The Duke of York had daily visited the Lady Anne in her sick room, and every day he sent from thence, in her hearing, a message as if to the Princess of Orange, to know how she was, that her sister might suppose she was still in England the duke being apprehensive lest the loss of the princess might give a fatal turn to the illness of his beloved Anne. He had therefore commanded the departure of the bridal party to be kept a profound secret from her. The day that the news came of the safe arrival of the princess of Orange, the duke of York himself undertook to break to the lady Anne the fact that her sister was actually gone, which he expected to prove heart-rending to her. Perhaps he was disappointed in regard to the veracity of the sisterly affection, for Lady Anne took the intelligence very patiently. A week afterwards, she removed from her own suite of apartments, and was given possession of those at St. James's that had belonged to her sister. The Lady Anne had previously requested Dr. Lake to return thanks to God in her chamber for her recovery, and at this service had given, as her offering, two guineas for distribution among the poor. This modest gift, as a thank-offering for mercies received, is probably an instance of the very obscure point of the offertory of our church, according to its discipline before the revolution. For the princess had not completed her fourteenth year, and we find, by Dr. Lake's testimony, that she had not yet communicated. The day on which she thus religiously celebrated her recovery was an awful one, for her governess, Lady Frances Villiers, expired of the same malady from which she was just convalescent. Dr. Lake makes no mention of the grief of Anne for this loss, but merely observes that in the early part of December, all the court were gossiping as to who should be the successor of Lady Frances Villiers. The king made choice of Lady Clarendon. The death of the infant brother, whose birth had so inopportunely interfered with the sweetness of the orange honeymoon, took place on December 12th. The demise of the young prince rendered the Princess Mary again heiress presumptive to the British throne. The Lady Anne appeared at St. James's Chapel four days after, perfectly recovered. The earliest intelligence from Holland of the Princess of Orange gave great pain to her anxious but too timid tutor, Dr. Lake, who thus expresses his concern at her relapse into her former evil habit of Sunday card playing. I was very sorry to understand that the Princess of Orange, since her being in Holland, did sometimes play at cards upon the Sundays, which would doubtless give offense to that people. He then mentions his efforts to eradicate that bad custom of the princess in England, which he had thought were successful, since she had abstained from the wrong he had pointed out for two years. How soon the Princess of Orange returned to this detestable practice may be judged, since she only left England the 28th of November, and Dr. Lake records her Sunday gamblings, January 9th, scarcely six weeks afterwards. 
he seems astonished that she did not require his services as her chaplain in Holland, or those of Dr. Dowdy, who had, with him, been her chaplains and assistant tutors for many years. The inveteracy of the Princess of Orange as a gambler, and the passion of his princess for card-playing, combined with the certainty of remonstrances of the Church of England clergymen, might have been the reason. Dr. Cox and Dr. Lloyd were the chaplains who accompanied her to Holland, where, at first, on account of the enmity of the prince to the Church of England, no chapel was provided, although an ecclesiastical establishment had been stipulated for the princess. Dr. Lloyd was recalled by the end of January. He had greatly displeased the primate of the Church of England by sanctioning the princess's frequenting a congregation of dissenters at The Hague. It had been more consistent with his clerical character if he had induced her to suppress her Sunday gambling parties. Dr. Lake was further informed that the princess had grown fat but looked very beautiful. Just before Easter, the young Princess Anne was confirmed in royal state at the chapel of Whitehall by her preceptor, Compton, Bishop of London. Her first communion took place on Easter Sunday. Her tutor, Dr. Lake, gives the following account of the extraordinary manner in which she conducted herself. Being Easter Day for the first time, the Lady Anne received the sacrament. The Bishop of Exeter preached at St. James's Chapel and consecrated. Through negligence, Her Highness was not instructed how much to drink, but drank of it, that is the cup, thrice. Whereat I was much concerned, lest the Duke of York, her father, should have notice of it. The gross negligence of which Dr. Lake complains must have been the fault of the preceptor of the princess, Compton, Bishop of London, whose thoughts were too busy with polemics to attend to the proper instruction of his charge. The unseemly conduct of the princess on this occasion reflects the greatest possible disgrace on the prelate, whose duty it was to have prepared her for the reception of this solemn rite, and on whom a greater degree of responsibility than ordinary devolved, on account of her father's unhappy secession from the communion of the Church of England. It is apparent that Compton had not even taken the trouble of reading and explaining to his royal pupil the eleventh chapter of St. Paul's epistle to the Corinthians, verses 21 and 22, or this startling violation of the reverential decorum practiced and enjoined by the Church of England could not have occurred. In the comment made by Dr. Lake on this incident, the timidity of his disposition is at once apparent and very reprehensible. He is disgusted with the mistake of the young communicant, not because it was wrong, but lest her Roman Catholic father should be informed of it. Likewise, the reader may observe, he is troubled at the relapse of the Princess of Orange into her former sins, of passing the Sabbath at the card table, not because he allowed that it was a sin, but lest the Dutch people might be offended at it. Few persons have any salutary influence over the hearts and characters of their fellow creatures, whose reprehension of wrong does not spring from loftier motives. Yet he had done his duty more conscientiously than any other person to whom the education of these princesses was committed. He had reproved the bad habits of his pupils sufficiently to give lasting offense to them. Although he lived to see each of them queen regnant and head of the church, they left him with as little preferment as he had received from their father and uncle. Had he told them the truth with the unshrinking firmness of Ken or Sancroft, they could but have done the same. 
Notwithstanding the error into which the young communicant had fallen, Dr. Lake wrote to the Princess of Orange, to inform her that her sister had received the holy sacrament. As if the Lady Anne had conducted herself so as to edify, instead of disgusting everyone. Again, he was blamable, since, if he had mentioned the circumstance he disliked to the princess, a sister could have reprehended the unfortunate mistake with delicacy and affection. Dr. Hooper was recommended as the Princess of Orange Almoner by the Bishop of Canterbury. He was a primitive, apostolical man, greatly attached to the Church of England, according to its discipline, established at the dissemination of our present translation of Scripture. The two archbishops, Sancroft the primate, and Dolben of York, used to call him Father Hooper, on account of his baldness, and told him to buy a periwig, in jest only. For such fashion was considered scandalously effeminate by the Church of England divines of that elder day. On his arrival in Holland, he found the princess without any chapel for divine service, and her private apartments were so confined that she had no room that could be converted into one, excepting her dining room. Now the prince and the princess of Orange never ate together, for the deputies of the states general and their Dutch officers often dined with the prince, and they were no fit company for her. Therefore the princess was able to give up her dining room for the service of the Church of England. She did so, and very cheerfully ate her dinner every day in a small and very dark parlor. She ordered Dr. Hooper to fit up the room she had relinquished for her chapel. When it was finished, her highness bade him be sure and be there on a particular afternoon, when the prince intended to come and see what was done. Dr. Hooper was in attendance, and the prince kept his appointment. The first thing noticed by the prince was that the communion table was raised two steps, and the chair where the princess was to sit was near it on the same dais. Upon which, the prince bestowing on each a contemptuous kick, asked, What they were for? When he was told their use, he answered with an emphatic, Hum. When the chapel was fit for service, the prince never came to it, but once or twice on Sunday evenings. The princess attended twice a day, being very careful not to make Dr. Hooper wait. The prince had caused books, inculcating the tenets of the Dutch dissenters, to be put in the hands of his young princess. Those Dr. Hooper withdrew from her, earnestly requesting her to be guided by him in her studies of theological authors. One day the prince entered her apartment, and found before her Eusebius and Dr. Hooker's ecclesiastical polity which last is allowed to be one of the grandest literary ornaments of our church, while she was deeply engaged in one of Hooker's volumes. The prince, in great commotion, said angrily, What? I suppose it is Dr. Hooper persuades ye to read such books? The marriage of Sarah Jennings, the favorite playfellow of the Lady Anne of York, was declared in the winter of 1677. She had been espoused clandestinely to the handsome Colonel Churchill, the favorite gentleman of the Duke of York. Sarah was tender in years, but more experienced in worldcraft than many women of thrice her age. She was, at the period of her marriage, in the service of the young Duchess of York, a circumstance which did not prevent constant intercourse with the Lady Anne, who lived under the same roof, with her father and stepmother, either at St. James's Palace or at Richmond Palace. As Sarah seemed laboring under some trouble of mind, the Duchess of York drew from her the secret that oppressed her, 
her royal highness immediately undertook to reconcile all adverse feelings towards this marriage among the relatives both of churchill and sarah giving her attendant a handsome donation by way of portion and causing her to be appointed to a place of trust about her person when sarah found herself on firm footing in the household at st james's her first maneuver was how to get rid of mrs cornwallis the lady by whom it may be remembered she was first introduced as the playfellow of the princess anne and who had hitherto been infinitely beloved by her royal highness unfortunately in that century whensoever a deed of treachery was to be performed the performer could always be held irresponsible if he or she could raise a cry of religion sarah knew as she waited on the duchess of york what ladies in the palace attended the private roman catholic chapel permitted at st james's for the duchess being aware by this means that mrs cornwallis was of that creed she secretly denounced her as a papist to bishop compton the preceptor of the lady anne of york he immediately procured an order of council forbidding mrs cornwallis ever to come again into the presence of the young princess the privy council only acted prudently in taking this measure a circumstance which does not modify the utter baseness of the first political exploit recorded of the future duchess sarah of marlborough the lady anne of york was now in possession of her adult establishment at her apartments in her father's palace her aunt lady clarendon was her governess barbara villiers the third daughter of the late governess now mrs berkeley was her first lady and if the beloved sarah churchill was not actually in her service the princess had at least the opportunity of seeing her every day as they lived under the same roof this affection was not directed by mrs churchill to any wise or good purpose the lady anne made no efforts to complete her own neglected education card-playing at which she was usually a serious loser was the whole occupation of this pair of friends leaving them in pursuit of this worthy object our narrative returns to the princess of orange at the hague the princess found no less than three palaces the first called the hague in history was a grand but rather rugged gothic structure built by a count of holland in twelve fifty moated round on three sides and washed in front by the viver or fish preserve a lake-like sheet of water this palatial castle of the hague was the seat of the stadtholdship and recognized as such by the states-general here their several assemblies met and the business of the republic was transacted in its noble gothic halls mary seldom approached the hague excepting on state occasions she lived at the palace in the wood a very beautiful residence about a mile from the state palace built as a place of retirement by the grandmother of william the third a noble mall of oak trees nearly a mile in length led to the palace in the wood which was surrounded by oak forest and by the richest gardens in europe the prince of orange built two wings to the original structure on the occasion of his marriage with the princess mary there was near the palace of the wood a dower palace called the old court the three palaces were situated only an hour's walk from the wild shoveling coast over one of the moated drawbridges of the gothic palace is built a gate called the shoveling gate which opened on a fine paved avenue bordered with yew trees carved into pyramids leading to the sea village of shoveling every passenger not a fisherman paid a small toll to keep up this avenue 
with the exception of the two Villiers, who were soon distinguished by the Prince of Orange in preference to his young wife, none of the English train who had accompanied the princess to her new home were remarkably well satisfied with their destiny. Sir Gabriel Silvius, whose wife was one of them, gave a dismal account of the unhappiness of the English ladies at The Hague. He observed to the resident envoy of Charles II. It is a pity the Prince of Orange does not use people better. As for Lady Betty Selburn, she complains and wails horribly. If all the attendants of the princess had so comported themselves, her royal highness need not have been envied. As to what the Prince of Orange had done to Lady Betty, we are in ignorance, and can enlighten our readers no further than the fact of her horrible wailings. The princess herself was so happy as to have the protection of the presence of Lord Clarendon, her uncle, who was ambassador at The Hague when his niece first arrived there. In his dispatches, he says, the princess parted very unexpectedly from her husband on March 1st, 1678. He had been hunting all the morning, and as he came home to her palace at The Hague to dinner, he received letters by the way that occasioned his sudden departure, of which the princess said, she had not the slightest previous intimation. It was the investment of Namur by the King of France that caused his departure. The princess accompanied her husband as far as Rotterdam, where says her uncle Clarendon. There was a very tender parting on both sides. At the same time, he observes, that he never saw the prince in such high spirits or good humor. The Princess of Orange chose to make the tour of her watery dominions by way of the canals in her barge, when she amused herself with needlework, or played at cards with her ladies, as they were tracked along the canals, or sailed over the broads and lakes. Dr. Hooper accompanied her in the barge, and when she worked, she always requested him to read to her and her ladies. One day, she wished him to read a French book to her, but he excused himself on account of his defective pronunciation of French. The princess begged him to read on, nevertheless, and she would tell him when he was wrong or at a loss. Hooper says that while he was in her household about a year and a half, he never heard her say or saw her do any one thing that he could have wished she had not said or done. She was then only between sixteen and seventeen. She did not distinguish any of her ladies by particular favor, and though very young, was a great observer of etiquette, never receiving anything or any message from persons whose office it was not to deliver the same. She had great command over her women, and maintained her authority by her prudence, if there was any conversation she did not approve, they read by her grave look that they had transgressed, and a dead silence ensued. The princess suffered much from ill health in Holland before she was acclimatized to the difference of air. During the same summer, she was in danger of her life from a severe bilious fever. The Prince of Orange was then absent from her at the camp. When a favorable crisis took place, Sir William Temple traveled to him, and brought the intelligence that the princess was recovering. He likewise gave the prince information that the last installment of her portion, twenty thousand pounds, would be paid to him speedily. The good news, either of his wife or of her cash, caused the prince to manifest unusual symptoms of animation. For, observed Sir William Temple, I have seldom seen him appear so bold or so pleasant. Mary, though ultimately childless, had more than once a prospect of being a mother. Her disappointment was announced to her anxious father, 
who immediately wrote to his nephew, the Prince of Orange, to urge her to be carefuler of herself, and added, he would write to her for the same purpose. This letter is dated April 19th, 1678. Soon after, Mary again had hopes of bringing an heir or heiress to Great Britain and Holland. If Lord Dartmouth may be believed, Mary's father had been purposely deceived in both instances to answer some political scheme of the Prince of Orange. Mary was then too young and too fond of her father to deceive him purposely. Her heart indeed was not estranged from him and from her own family for want of opportunity of affectionate intercourse. After her recovery from typhus or bilious fever, an intermittent hung long upon her, and her father, the Duke of York, thought it best to send his wife, Mary Beatrice, with the Princess Anne, to see her and to cheer her spirits. The visit of these princesses was thus announced to her husband by her father, who was about to accompany his brother, Charles II, to the October Newmarket meeting. James, Duke of York, to William, Prince of Orange. London, September 27th, 1678. We came thither on Wednesday last, and are preparing to go to Newmarket the beginning of next week, the Parliament being prorogued till the 21st of next month. Whilst we shall be out of town, the Duchess and my daughter Anne intend to make your wife a visit very incognito, and have yet said nothing of it to anybody here, but His Majesty, whose leave they asked, and will not mention it till the post be gone. They carry little company with them, and send this bearer, Robert White, before, to see to get a house for them, as near your court as they can. They intend to stay only whilst we shall be at Newmarket. I was very glad to see, by the last letters, that my daughter continued so well, and hope now she will go out her full time. I have written to her to be very careful of herself, and that she would do well not to stand too long, for that is very ill for a young woman in her state. The incognito ladies intend to set out from hence, on Tuesday next, if the wind be fair. They have bid me tell you they desire to be very incognito, and they have Lord Osory for their governor, or escort. I have not time to say more, but only to assure you that I shall always be very kind to you. Endorsed. For my son, the Prince of Orange. Accordingly, the Duchess of York and the Princess Anne, attended by the chivalric Osory as their escort, set out from Whitehall on October 1st, or 11th, 1678, to visit the Princess of Orange at The Hague, where they arrived speedily and safely. The prince received them with the highest marks of distinction, and as for the excessive affection with which Mary met her stepmother and sister, all her contemporary biographers dwell on it as the principal incident of her life in Holland. The caresses she lavished on the Lady Anne amounted to transport when she first saw her. At that era of unbroken confidence and kindness, Mary and her stepmother were the best of friends. She was given a pet name in her own family, and the Duchess addressed her by it. As the Prince was the orange, Mary, in contradistinction, was the lemon, and my dear lemon was the term with which most of her stepmother's letters began until the revolution. The Lady Anne and the Duchess stayed but a few days with the princess, as the Duke of York announces their safe return, October 18th, in his letter of thanks to his son, the Prince of Orange, for his hospitality. The Princess of Orange saw much of her father and family in the succeeding year, which was the time of his banishment on account of his religion. 
When he came to the Hague in March, 1679, he met with a most affectionate welcome from his daughter, and with great hospitality from his nephew, her husband. The princess melted into tears when she saw her father, and was full of the tenderest condolences on the mournful occasion of his visit. She was still suffering from intermittent fever, which hung on her the whole of that year. Her father, the Duke of York, wrote thus to her uncle, Lawrence Hyde, from The Hague, in the April of the same year, in the midst of his anxiety regarding the proceedings in England, he made the ill health of his daughter, Mary, the subject of several letters. My daughter's ague fit continues still. Her eleventh fit is now upon her, but as the cold fit is not so long as usual, I have hopes it is a going off. I am called away to supper, so that I can say no more but that you shall always find me as much your friend as ever. In a letter to the Prince of Orange, he says, I am exceedingly glad that my daughter has missed her ague. I hope she will have no more now the warm weather has come. In another, he rejoices that her journey to Deeran has cured her. In June, her father again laments the continuation of her ague. Deeran was a hunting palace belonging to the Prince of Orange, where Henry Sidney soon after found the princess, the prince, and their court. He was sent envoy from Charles II to William, whom, he says, I found at Deeran in an ill house, but a fine country. The prince took me up to his bedchamber, where he asked me questions, and I informed him of everything, much to his satisfaction. The news that gave so much satisfaction was the agitation in England respecting the Popish plot conducted by Titus Oates. Sidney dined at Deeran with the princess and found at her table Lady Inchiquin, who was the first lady of the bedchamber. She was one of the Villiers' sisterhood, under whose noxious influence at her own court the peace of the English princess was withering. The Prince of Orange was one day discussing the Popish plot, and observing that Dr. Hooper was by no means of his mind, for that divine did not conceal his contempt for the whole machination. The prince subjoined, Well, Dr. Hooper, you will never be a bishop. Every day widened the differences between Dr. Hooper and the Prince of Orange, who was ever inimical to the Church of England service, and this Dr. Hooper would never compromise by any undue compliance. The Prince of Orange, in consequence, was heard to say that if ever he had anything to do with England, Dr. Hooper should remain Dr. Hooper still. When Dr. Hooper wished to return to England to fulfill his marriage engagement with Mr. Guilford's daughter, a lady of an old Cavalier family resident at Lambeth, greatly esteemed by Archbishop Sheldon, the princess was alarmed, fearing he would leave her and never return to Holland. Her Royal Highness told him, that he must prevail with his lady to come to Holland. He promised that he would do his best to induce her to come. The princess was obeyed, but she was not able to procure for Mrs. Hooper the most hospitable entertainment in the world. Dr. Hooper had always taken his meals with the ladies of the bedchamber and the maids of honor of the princess, and his wife was invited by her royal highness to do the same. But well knowing the great economy of the prince and his general dislike to the English, Dr. Hooper never once suffered his wife to eat at his expense, and he himself left off dining at the prince's table, always taking his meals with his wife at their own lodging, which was very near the court. This conduct of Dr. Hooper resulted wholly from his sense of the griping meanness of William. 
the prince nevertheless had been heard to say that as he had been told that mrs hooper was a very fine woman he should like to salute her and welcome her to holland it was a great jest among the women of the princess to hear the prince often speak of a person in the service of their mistress and yet months pass away without his speaking to her or knowing who she was dr hooper must have been a man of fortune since he spent upwards of two thousand pounds when in the service of the princess in books and linen the dutch who keep their clergy very poor were amazed and called him the rich papa the other chaplain was a worthy man but unprovided with independent subsistence in england and not doubting that he should have a handsome stipend paid him though the prince mentioned no particulars he was never paid a farthing and having run in debt he died of a broken heart in prison dr hooper only received a few pounds for nearly two years attendance a specimen of dutch generosity observes his relative of which more instances will be given the princess had four thousand pounds per annum for her expenses a very different revenue from the noble one we shall see allowed to her youngest sister by her uncle and father part of this sum was lost to her by the difference of exchange about two hundred pounds per annum the lady anne accompanied her father in his next visit to the hague during his exile in brussels he had demanded of his brother charles the second that his children should be sent to him after some demur the lady anne and her half-sister the little lady isabella were permitted to embark on board the greenwich frigate in the summer of sixteen seventy nine when she spent some time with her sister at the hague the greatest affection seemed to prevail among the family of the duke of york when he again visited the princess of orange in september sixteen seventy nine accompanied by his wife her mother the duchess of modena and the lady anne colonel and mrs churchill were both in attendance on their exiled master and mistress in the low countries and it must have been on these series of visits that the princess of orange and mrs churchill took their well-known antipathy to each other for neither the princess nor the lady had had any previous opportunities for hatred at least as adults when her father and his family departed the princess of orange with her husband bore them company as far as the maesland sluice she parted with her father in an agony of tears and took tender and oft-repeated farewells of him his consort and her sister her father she never beheld again at that period of her life mary did not know and probably would have heard with horror all the intrigues her husband was concocting with the sydneys sunderlands russells oates and bedloes for hurling her father from his place in the succession and convulsing her native country with the agonies of civil war by the means of the profligate monmouth documentary evidence whatever general history may assert to the contrary proves that this conduct of her husband was ungrateful because he had received vital support from his relatives in england at a time when he must have been forever crushed beneath the united force of the party in holland adverse to his re-establishment as a stadtholder and the whole might of france long before the marriage of william of orange with the heiress of great britain the ambition of his party of dutchmen had anticipated for him the throne of charles the second to this result they considered that a prophecy of nostradamus tended in order that the english might consider william in that light 
an anonymous letter was sent to Sir William Temple at Nimeguen, where he was staying, in 1679, negotiating the peace which was concluded between Holland and France, or rather Spain and France. It would have been difficult for anyone but a partisan to discover a prophecy in this quatrain, at least beyond the first line. Ne sous les ombres, jeune nocturne, sera en glory, et souverain bonte, fera renaisse, le sang de l'antique yearn, et chanera en or, les siècles d'Iran. Born under the shade of a nocturnal day, he will be glorious and supremely good. In him will be renewed the ancient blood, and he will change an age of brass into one of gold. The Dutch partisan who sent this prophecy for the edification of the English ambassador likewise favored him with expounding the same. The explanation was that the Prince of Orange being born under the shades of a nocturnal day was verified by the time of his birth, a few days after the untimely death of his father, his mother being plunged in the deepest grief of mourning and the light of a November day excluded from her apartments, which were hung with black and only illumined by melancholy lamps. Renewing the ancient urn of blood was by the descent of the prince from Charlemagne through the house of Louvain. The rest of the spell alluded to the personal virtues of the Prince of Orange and the wonderful happiness Great Britain would enjoy in possessing him. The gold and the brass were perhaps verified by his contriving dexterously by means of the Dutch system of finance to obtain possession by anticipation of all the gold of succeeding generations to enrich his age of brass. The Princess of Orange seemed much recovered at Deeren. Sidney wrote to her father that he could scarcely believe she wanted any remedies. Nevertheless, it was her intention to visit the baths at Aix-la-Chapelle. A day was appointed for her journey. Her husband placed her under the care of his favorite physician, Dr. Drelincourt of Leyden, son to the well-known Calvinist, author on death. This physician traveled with the princess to Aix and returned with her. He was the Dryden Professor of Medicine and at the head of the medical establishment of the court till 1688. End of section 19.